0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now, well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a
1: conversation.
0: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm
1: Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. He's very clear about what he wants. He's a great dresser, he never looks embarrassing, which is hard for a man. He takes all of my moods steadily, he doesn't make me feel bad about them. He rarely gets defeated, which I feel like I always do. Wow, how did you get my wife to say all those nice things about me? Thanks, Josh. I did have to ask her to say one nice thing for every five bad things. That, that math checks out. Actually, not my wife Sarah in that clip, but Scarlett Johansson in Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. Johansson and Adam Driver play a couple whose marriage is pretty much over. Our review, plus our top five movies about marriage. It's all ahead. I'm always defeated, too. It's mostly about how I'm not a great dresser. On Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Let's see, Marriage Story. We're discussing that movie this week, and we are sharing our top five movies about marriage. This might be the first time in the history of the show we actually have some authority to discuss a topic, over 40 years of marriage between oh, us, Josh. You,
0: way to make us sound about 100 years old. I know. <laughs> we, we both got married when we were 14. Apparently, yes. <laughs> they're, <laughs> technically, they're not legal marriages, apparently. No.
1: And this top five movies about marriage, we will certainly get into this, is probably more accurately termed a top five movies about almost getting a divorce.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair for my list, too. I tried to make it as sunny as I could. Not a ton of sunny marriage movies out there. There really isn't. Before we get to that, writer-director Noah Baumbach is back with Marriage Story, but it's the film's stars, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, who have been receiving most of the early praise. What I love about Nicole, she is a mother who plays, really plays.
1: So I'll tell Charlie what's happening and Cassie, you then hand him the envelope. I just get nervous. Can you unserve? What do you mean, like take it back? Charlie and I are getting a divorce, Mom. You can't be friends with him anymore. Gee, Ma! Charlie Bird! (laughs) (laughs) Mom! Mom!
0: Noah Baumbach's latest film as a director is titled Marriage Story, Adam, but it's no spoiler to say that, yes, this could be more accurately called Divorce Story. Within the first 10 minutes, we learn that the central couple, stage actor Nicole, played by Scarlett Johansson, and theater director Charlie, played by Adam Driver, are in the midst of a separation, negotiating their way toward divorce. For the next two hours or so, we follow those increasingly fraught, heightened, and painful negotiations, especially as they involve the couple's young son, Henry, played by Ozzy Robertson. Baumbach's screenplay fairly evenly divides its time between Nicole and Charlie as she moves from New York to L.A. to shoot a television pilot, and he commutes back and forth to spend time with Henry while directing his Broadway debut. Fairly evenly, I say, because fairness is frequently what's up for debate in the film what's fair for Nicole, what's fair for Charlie, what's fair for Henry, and how all of that gets defined by the various lawyers they eventually find themselves enmeshed with. Played by Laura Dern, Ray Liotta, Alan Alda. I want to talk about each of those performances at least briefly. Yeah. Now, given its structure, Adam, it's hard to sit through marriage story and not play judge a bit. Given everything Baumbach shows us, did you find yourself siding with one party over the other? Or is it possible that answering that question misses the point of what this movie hopes to say about marriage in general Mm. and
1: divorce in particular? Well, maybe the best answer for a movie about marriage and, as you noted, more specifically about divorce. And one that I do think understands all of the emotional and procedural pitfalls and pain with as much complexity and clarity as this movie does Can my answer just be it's complicated? Well, I think that's the movie's answer. (laughs) Yeah. If I have to elaborate and I'll put my lawyer hat on here and I'll get into the legalese a little bit. I don't think it's fair to bound back as a writer or director to say that the movie has a side. I think that that's probably too reductive and I think it overlooks too many things, some of which we may get into. Now, is there a hand maybe just somewhat tipping the scale of sympathy in one direction versus the other? Is it Nicole's direction? Is it Charlie's direction? Or is that scale perfectly balanced? Of those three answers, the only one I flatly reject is that it paints Nicole as the more sympathetic figure. I think that's hmm. a pretty tough case to make. Now, I could get into citing various acts and things said by each spouse and the various ways I do think Back aligns us more with Charlie. But the details aren't as important to me as the question of if and why it matters. Yeah. and And here's why I do think it matters a little bit, even though, if it's not clear, I love this movie. One, it opens, the film does, in a way that establishes a sense of balance that we do expect the movie to follow through on. And as you said, for the most part, it does including in how much time we spend with each character. But I love the beginning of this film, and we'll talk some about the cinematography and the editing for sure, but this conceit of letters being written, you heard it in the voiceover there, where it's Nicole explaining what she loves most or likes most about Charlie and Charlie doing the same. And while we are hearing that voiceover, we are seeing moments from their lives that support those various points being made. So right away, there is symmetry to the film structure. But second, the movie is funniest and I think saddest when we see the full humanity of each character on display for better and mostly for worse. So, when we're seeing these characters at their most petty, at their most self righteous, at their most hurt, but also at their most loving and caring, and the times where they seem to genuinely be wanting what's best for not only their child, but also for each other, even if it might be misguided. And I do think that by making Charlie a little bit more the victim, that is how I see it, it maybe robs him of some of that humanity. But also, dramatically, I do think to try to put things back in balance. Baumbach burdens Charlie with one great sin that gives us the space as a viewer to hate him and to justify Nicole's aggression. And this is not a spoiler. It's introduced in the first 15 minutes of the film. I think he at one point while they were married, slept with someone else slept with someone in their theater company. That felt a little bit narratively convenient to me. Mm. And I really found myself wishing or the thing I was wrestling with the most at the end of this film was if Baumbach could have found a way to make them both just be really flawed characters yeah. without one of them having to commit that act. Because you said, see
0: that as a as an attempt I blatantly to balance those scales a little more. I do. Okay. I think
1: at that point in the film we are so on his side hmm, as far as feeling like Nicole's the aggressor that in order to tip it back a little bit her way, that was introduced. It had already been introduced earlier, but there is another revelation that comes up that allows us to hate Charlie a little bit, even though that's simplifying it too. So that all said, and I can't wait to hear your reaction to it and whether or not you found yourself leaning one way or the other. Just when I thought the movie did have us most on Charlie's side, he goes and makes one of the dumbest choices that he makes in the entire film. And we probably won't get into it, but it's one that I'm sure a certain segment of the audience might actually applaud him for and be glad that he did it, that he kind of defended himself and acted a bit of the aggressor finally. But more reasonable folks probably recognize, and I'm sorry to do this, that this was Adam Driver just giving into the dark side at that moment. So I guess I kind of come back to it's really complicated. Yeah, well, we're going to agree on
0: that the movie aims to achieve some sort of balance, and I think that renders my opening question moot. I, th- I think that's what the movie wants to show so this us. Is, a is trick that it question. is a trick question? Yeah, but I'll answer it myself. Thanks. I'll answer it myself still, <laughs> because I think this is one of the things people are going to come out of this movie inevitably talking about: um, is how balanced it is, and if not, where does it maybe tip? Um, but it's attempt at balance is what i admired most about it right as you said from that opening sequence it it's telling us we're going to give try to give you as full of a picture as we can of this awful everyday human experience that what uh, us- what are the stats usually 50% of marriages something along those lines meet at some point. Mm-hmm. And so this is a common human experience. We're going to try to depict it with as much honesty and truthfulness and fairness as we can. And I think the scenes that are written for each of these actors who are both doing stellar work um, absolutely give them those opportunities to be balanced. And the story does as well. That said, I'm totally on the other side of this. I, I think that the person I felt was maybe getting the raw deal here or out of this marriage was Nicole. Um, I don't think it's that lopsided. I, this, okay. is, this is like very – It's it's. You're, this is a good picture of a marriage that is just at a truly complicated, difficult crossroads sure. for so many reasons yes. that you can't say this action led to that. But there is a line that she shares when she has her first meeting with her lawyer that she ends up hiring, played mm-hmm. by Laura Dern, against their agreement. Um, which this is an aggressive move by her. Yes. But but notice how she gets there. This lawyer invites her into this office, and it's a very comforting, warm. There's tea. There's good cookies. It's not like a we're gonna go after him. She listens to Nicole. Yes. And that's why Nicole decides to work with her because she feels like she's found someone. Now, Charlie does the same when he it's meets a Alan Alda's by Laura. Durr. Laura we should say that. But yes, it's a yes. seduction. You're right. When Charlie meets Alan Alda's lawyer. Mm-hmm. He he connects with him for the same reasons. Alda listens to what Charlie wants to say. But yes. going back to why I feel yes, like – but
1: real quick. Yeah. Going back to what I was arguing, it's hard for me to think that most viewers aren't going to listen to Alan Alda and see this grandfather lawyer who seems so loving and sure. caring and definitely not the guy who's going to go for the jugular at any point. And they're going to compare that to Laura Dern who – says all the right things with that perfectly soothing tone, but yeah. there's clearly yep. someone underneath that's ready to just take Charlie right. for everything he's got. But
0: Charlie so moves there's on. there's a difference.
1: There's a difference, and Charlie moves on to Ray he, And so he, then that balance— the, That's, that's uh, that act I was talking about.
0: Right. Yes. Okay, well, back to Nicole. The, the one line she says in that meeting with— Laura Dern, and this is in as part of an extended single take on Johansson, walking around the room. I believe she goes into another
1: room to get a Kleenex or something. I love that. How comfortable she is that she kind of goes into the bathroom yeah, you can it's already
0: her like space. Exactly. That's how Laura Dern has made her feel. So she's beginning to open up, and Johansson carries this moment until she comes back towards the camera and is almost right in on her face. Yeah. And she says something about her entire marriage. I got smaller. And I think that is a – re like if there is a root, if you listen to both of their stories told to each other in screaming matches, told to the therapist briefly at the very beginning, told to their individual lawyers. If there is a root, it is that somewhere along the way, um, it did not become a shared life anymore. It became a life about Charlie's mm-hmm. profession. Um, and Nicole capturing that with the, that word, I that phrase, I got smaller uh, – m- Now, here's where I'm back on Charlie's side. I almost wish – we don't get a lot of their marriage when they were happy. We get those letters at the beginning. But otherwise, we don't get a lot of flashbacks. I almost wish this movie had – and maybe this is just because you're rooting for this couple, right? You don't want to see them split – had shown us or had given them the moment to recognize earlier through therapy or counseling or something that she said, I got smaller than to him – Right. And give the opportunity for him to realize that he was doing that and change. It's like when she comes upon that self-realization, the train is just too far
1: down the tracks. And
0: that's one of the tragedies of this movie.
1: It really is. And I think it's encapsulated in another line, which may come in that conversation with Laura Dern, or maybe it's a bit later in the film. But at one point, she says, when I came to him with this opportunity to move to L.A., if he had just said to me, Okay, basically, go do it. Mm-hmm. Give it a try. Given her that space to be herself, to grow a little bit, then they probably wouldn't be in this situation. Yeah, and yeah. and he didn't. It was as if she was testing him there, even though maybe at the time she wasn't viewing it that way. And he failed miserably. And so does the marriage. So I think the fact
0: that we both are, you know, seeing different sort of well, angles on this, I think that's that's a testament to sure, the film but being able to offer those
1: things. I do want to clarify, though. I think there is a difference and. Even this is going to get too complicated. But there is a difference in seeing it as balanced as far as being able to sit back dispassionately and objectively and Mm -hmm. say she's absolutely justified in everything she's doing. And that the movie gives her proper reason to do everything she's doing. I absolutely see that. Do I think that the film, though, slightly leans toward him as being the one who is the aggrieved I do think the movie leans towards him. That doesn't mean that that's what the reality is as much as this is a fictional scenario anyway. Sure. But do you see the distinction I'm making? Oh, I see the distinction. And yeah. and I would say I I see those sympathies more towards Nicole. OK. Um, I think it's very easy to think that she is ultimately the more sympathetic character. Yeah. But, boy, he wants to give Driver every opportunity to be the guy who's just, just trying to do what's best. And it's her and her lawyer that are – driving all of this negativity
0: well let's talk him.
1: about let's talk about the standout perhaps acting scene where
0: i think the balance really comes back to the four and that is their huge fight this is you know maybe halfway through a little further than that yeah three quarters and maybe. um they they are trying they already lawyers have been involved and it's just the two of them in this apartment he's rented in la and they start amicably and you see that guy you're describing. Like, totally. he's just the guy who wants to be reasonable. Yeah. He even makes the very reasonable point that he suggested not involving lawyers at the yes. very beginning because yes. he knew they'd get here. And things just, the way that conversation spirals is, I'll just say it's masterful. Masterful. <laughs> yeah. Like, sadly realistic and familiar. Yes. <laughs> and that they can, again, it's sustaining that both actors can sustain. It's not a single take as Johansson's earlier scene, But even with the edit, sustain that, uh, that level of the rhythm and the downward spiral that the two of them all the way to the very awful bottom uh, of, you know, violence to some degree. Yeah. Um, it, it's just astonishing. I think that is almost a bookend to the opening letter writing sequence where you see both of them expressing their love. And in that argument, you see both of them getting the chance to equally express their hate awfully, awfully, um, and become the worst of themselves. Mm -hmm. Instead of praising the best of each other, they become the worst of themselves to each other. Yeah,
1: I think that's absolutely intended, that bookend idea. And I want to go back real quick to that. Conversation with Laura Dern in the office, we were talking about her comfort there and the way she moves around the space. I also think it probably relates in some way to her profession, which is a stage actress. And I'm not suggesting that anything she's doing Nicole's profession, by way yeah. of performance is false or artificial. But in order to tell her story, she has to hold the room. She has to hold the room. Yeah. She has to get up and walk around. She has to make entrances and exits. It's not overly dramatic, but it is what she does. And Sam and I were joking about going to see this movie. We both separately saw it with our wives. And you wonder if this is going to be one of those films that's going to provoke any any fights, if you will, on the way home, any disagreements, any heated discussions. Maybe you see too much of yourself in one of the people on screen or a familiar situation comes up. And I'm happy to report that that did not happen. We did not have any heated exchanges at all on the way home. We survived our viewing as well. Good. We did have one small rhetorical squabble, and that was about our top five this week, Sarah could not understand why I suggested we should do a top five movies about marriage inspired by this movie when it so clearly isn't really about marriage at all. It really fundamentally is about divorce. And she also, of course, was then taking Noah Baumbach to task for calling the movie Marriage Story. Yeah. But it should be Divorce Story, as you said. But of course, I did have to defend Noah and I guess ourselves a little bit because I do love the irony of the movie being called Marriage Story. Not only do we get that great opening sequence that we've talked about with the music and everything about it feeling like such a, a fairy tale. And Scarlett Johansson, that opening shot of her coming out onto a stage and the mm-hmm. spotlight just on her. there's very, something, very Bergman. Very Bergman, which we can maybe talk more about. There's definitely a lot of scenes from a marriage homages, I think, in this film. But the way it's lit so dramatically and the way her face pops into the frame, just as he's saying, here's what I love about her. It immediately puts her on some kind of pedestal. It, it idealizes her in a way, just with a single shot and the way it's lit. And I really love that. And it goes from setting up how great these two people are and the depth of their feelings for each other, the positive feelings they have for each other, to then immediately taking us back to reality, the sterility of a therapist's office mm-hmm. and her refusing to share her letter with Charlie and the therapist. So this great exchange of ideas and adoration for each other, well, we're the only ones who are privy to it. The other person doesn't get to feel that. So I kind of like the joke of it, and there's a lot of humor in this movie. There is. The way he literally pulls the rug out from under them and us in that moment with that edit to that therapist's office. But I also think you can make a very easy case that, of course, in telling the story of the divorce, we actually do get the story of the marriage and the full picture of the marriage. But I do think as well that that word story in the title is key. I think it reflects on the fact or it's not an accident that they are both storytellers, one an actress and one a playwright and director. But as we see for the rest of the film, every time they are reliving any type of grievance, From their past marriage or some new grievance that has popped up or they're in court and they are in dialogue with each other but actually not at all because they have two other people who are saying all the words for them the truth of their marriage we recognize is completely beholden to whoever happens to be telling the story in that moment. It's whatever version of their marriage and whatever perspective of the marriage Mm -hmm. is being shared by them, by the person they're talking to, by the person who's talking on their behalf. There is an element of creation that we see play out through this entire film. Well, that's the tragedy of the courtroom sequence is
0: that we know them well enough, and we know enough of their story at this point to understand that what we're hearing there out of the mouths of their lawyers is not untrue, but because it is such a select viewpoint on their marriage, right. we are getting at best a half-true. That's it. Um, it's and true it's, and false at
1: the same time. Yeah,
0: and it's just, it's just a really, really depressing scene, but – I am glad that you said this film is very funny because I think we need to point that out it for is. those who might be a little hesitant to go into this. After all we've talked about, there's an early sequence where you know the setup is not funny, but where um, Nicole decides it's time to have the divorce papers served to Charlie when he comes into Josh, her mother's house. This is a house. scene of the year. Kenny. Played okay, I can. That's I how can good see I that. think it is. Uh, her mother, Nicole's mother, Julie Haggerty, we should say, in a great performance. Yeah, um, and her, her sister, sister Merritt Weaver. Merritt Weaver, who I just came to know in Netflix is unbelievable, that series, and she is so good in that. A very different performance. There she's a police detective who's very intense and serious, and here she's this sister who is, her name is Cassie, who's who's kind of left with the responsibility of serving the papers to her brother-in-law. Yes. And she just, it becomes this farce, it's a farce. scene, right? Which we've seen in it's, other Baumbach films, so for beautifully sure. Constructed. But it's beautifully constructed and held very, like, long enough. They play it out long enough, and it's just one of the... <laughs> Many funny moments in the film. So there's a lot to leaven what you're seeing here, even if you're going to come out of it with a heavy heart overall. But yeah, Merritt Weaver is great. Julie Haggerty is great. We've talked about Alan Alda and and Laura Dern. Actually, Um,
1: real quick, I have to say about Alda. Maybe the best unsung comedic line in the film is when he at one point says, if I was defending you and Charlie says, you are defending me. (laughs) All that is fantastic. The delivery and he's such a
0: sympathetic guy and he's the voice of compassion in the divorce process yeah. that we as an audience are desperate for. Charlie at this point is not embittered enough to want anything else. This is what he wants. Yes. And maybe this is a place you you say it, it kind of leans towards him. Right. Um, but I would argue he's just not gotten to the other point yet. But it also shows that a guy like that is useless. Um, and, and what there's a there's another mm-hmm. line someone says about, you know, the system itself doesn't maybe it's maybe it's the All Alda character doesn't re reward good behavior or something or yeah. it brings out our worst selves. I think it's the Laura Dern character, actually. And then we get Ray Liotta, who for a minute, I was not quite sure it was him. He's behind this huge desk. Yeah. And uh, he's he he's the first lawyer that Charlie meets with, but Charlie realizes he's too cutthroat. He's yes. too mean. Um, and he shows up again later when I would argue Charlie makes a turn as equal to what Nicole has made in terms of how he's going to negotiate this process. So the supporting cast is, is great. We've already talked about Driver and Johansson. I, I think I'm just kind of looking over her filmography now, I'm tempted to say this is Johansson's best performance. Maybe Under the Skin is up there. Yeah, Um, I would say it's definitely, I haven't seen everything she's done, but her most um, real-life-based performance. I, I don't know if she's done anything as rooted in someone... Even though she's an actress, a relatively famous actress, but someone you might know yourself. Yeah. Um, we haven't seen Scarlett Johansson do a lot of characters like that. Um, and she absolutely shows that she's capable here. And Driver, um, you know, he's he has a scene. I don't want to spoil too much. Near the end. Near the end. But it involves. Uh, I mean, we're st- these are on the top of our minds. What yeah. are kind of rap party, end of the year category scenes? But another moving music, moment?
1: M- moving moment, oh, or musical music moment. moment. I was thinking okay. a musical moment. <laughs> okay, so music moment. That one didn't work for you. Oh, of course it. Worked oh, okay, for me. all right. I mean, first of all, it's Sondheim, so, Yeah. So and it's a brilliant song. So of course it's going to work. But if I was more cynical, I would say, just case closed. The final piece of evidence I need in terms of where Baumbacks. Loyalty and allegiance lies. He gives Adam Driver the chance to sing "Being Alive" all by himself. But
0: isn't that it's, isn't that not talking so about much, stacking the deck? I don't think it is. No, I don't think I, it's I as it. much. I love it. No, but but I I don't think that's why it's there because I don't think it's as much proving that Charlie was the more. Um, the more emotionally stable or no. whatever you want to say. This is what it's about. He
1: just gets a way better song from company to sing. So we like him more. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know if it works that way. This is why
0: I like the scene, though, because it begins. He's in a restaurant where his theater troupe hangs out all the time. Um, and it begins with him bitching about losing his couch. Mm-hmm. Right. And he, they're listening to him compassionately. These are his friends. And he realizes it's, it's more of a character thing. He realizes, I am being boring right now. Mm-hmm. And he says that. I'm sorry, this is sad. This is boring. And one of them says, no, it's OK. Let it out. And then he realizes, I'm a storyteller. Back to your idea of story. Yeah. And to sit here and just complain yeah. is not interesting. Yeah, let me find So a way he's going to, to go up to arts. the mic and turn Yeah the pain into Mm -hmm. art and I think that we see Nicole she doesn't get quite as much of a showcase moment but I think we see Nicole doing the same because she is an artist as well she ends up directing um, when she goes out to LA even though she initially was called out there as an actor Mm -hmm. um, and makes some headway there and gets uh, you know recognized in that vein so I think this this movie kind of recognizes uh, that they are both artists in their own right and that's part of the balance that got thrown off in the marriage. Charlie became the artist and mm-hmm. she was there to serve yeah. his art. Um, and I think the movie is is actually, you know, sympathizing with Nicole by saying for sure, because that balance
1: got thrown off. The marriage went under. Agreed. I think there's a lot more we could say about their performances. And I think we're going to have a chance to because I'm with you. I think they're two of the best performances of the year. I don't think either actor has ever been better. And there is a moving moment. That driver has, and it's completely word-free. It's just a pause. I won't get into any more detail than that, but it's a pause. Like in, had the last me, five in the Sorry, last five okay, minutes, okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. It had me so choked up yeah. that I almost burst into tears sitting there. But also, I would love to talk about the editing, because yes. this is something that I've really appreciated about Baumbach, especially going back to his past three films, maybe. And I wasn't surprised to learn at all just right before we came in to record that his editor on this film, Jennifer Lame, has been his editor since Francis Haw. And I guess maybe I was going to save this, but now I'm in on the editing. So I'll point it out. There is a moment or a series of moments that happen pretty early in the film. It's after that Introduction with the therapist and they have just had a performance of their play, Electra, that she's the star of, and they're at the after party. Yep. And this is where I wish I had the screener at home. No, so I, I could, know exactly so I what could moment it, you're gonna talk so about. So I could break it down, right? Because there is a couple shot reverse shots we get where they're not sitting together. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense knowing what we know about the dynamic, and they kind of have their own groups, and they're opposite the room from each other. And we get those glances that kind of show them looking at each other and appreciating each other, probably even loving each other, but just appreciating this moment and this company that they have and their part in all of this. And then I think it cuts to kind of a longer shot point of view from Johansson's point of view Mm -hmm. as she's looking at driver across the room. A woman who we don't know yet walks into the frame and whispers something to him and we see him from that same point of view. Look in Nicole's direction. Look at the camera, kind of. Then it cuts to Nicole. We see the reaction on her face, and it cuts back to him. A close-up of him reacting to her reaction. And I did not sell that properly at all because you have to experience the way those three, it's two the or speed. three moments. It's the are speed cut, of it too, and the, the abruptness to it, yeah. the rhythm, and the way. Then we go from that series of cuts to the subway on the way home where they're each on different sides, not talking to each other, that chasm that exists between them. Those edits tell us everything we need to know about that situation and even who that woman might be without us having any actual sense of the dynamic or the details of that dynamic. It sets an emotional mood and tone as well as conveying information that has a role in the plot. That is great filmmaking right there. Yeah, Jennifer Lame has been invaluable to uh, to Baumbach, I
0: think, with the last number of films. I don't know that she's edited everyone since Francis Ha, um, but a handful for sure. Mr. America and, while we were young. Yeah, yeah. And, and has just um, added a ton. I think you could say the same. You could praise the editing in that opening sequence for where sure. we are hearing their letters and seeing snippets of their previous life together.
1: So I think you are going to hear a little bit more about Marriage Story as we get into the end of the year and our top 10 films of the year. I don't want to be presumptuous for you, Josh. Is it in the conversation? Um, I don't know if it's going to crack the top 10. Mm. I can't say that I have any huge reservations
0: about it or any complaints, really. It's just kind of looking at that crowded field ahead of it.
1: Sure. Marriage Story is currently playing in limited release. And then it comes to Netflix on December 7th. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net.
0: FilmSpotting poll results next will reveal your choice for Tom Hanks' best performance as a real-life figure. Then the FilmSpotting top five, movies about marriage, some of which, like Marriage Story, may be headed for divorce. Stay with us.
1: It's like you woke up with a bad idea Headed out the door like you were never But it wasn't that way In this situation There's no one to blame A machine left on And now the battery's gone
0: come back to the old house. What if it's empty? What if we just peeked inside? We could throw parties. You can put on one of your plays. We could yell.
1: That's from the trailer for The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Maybe you caught it during its limited run in theaters earlier this year, but even more likely, maybe... You didn't, which kind of proves why it is one of our nominees for this year's Golden Brick Award. It's our Overlooked Film of the Year. Next week on the show, we're going to run through all of the nominees that we've seen to date, including a few titles that we're really hoping to get to sooner than later. But there are some new films we have managed to catch up with that we just haven't shared here on the show. We will do that next week, and we will revisit my conversations with the creators behind a couple of Brick nominees, not only Joe Talbot. And Jimmy Fails, who were the director and co-writer star, respectively, of The Last Black Man in San Francisco, but also director Riley Stearns, who made The Art of Self-Defense, starring Jesse Eisenberg. That is all coming next week on the show. And we should point out that a lot of the films that are on our radar or that we're trying to catch up with were suggestions that came from you, especially on social media. People following us on Twitter and replying to a tweet from at Larson on film or At Film Spotting. We appreciate all of those suggestions. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, you can click on events and get information about upcoming screenings. Here in the Chicago area, we like to give away movies for free and you get a chance to see them in advance of their release. As of this, recording josh we don't have anything on the site but that doesn't mean there won't be something there by the time people hear it we actually just gave away passes to screenings earlier this week of waves directed by trey edward schultz and dark waters the new one from todd haynes Starring Mark Ruffalo. Again, that's filmspotting.net slash events.
0: Quick note about our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. Host Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky there. They have a new pairing out, and the first episode of that is available right now. It's week one of their Nazi comedies pairing. So they're looking at Mel Brooks' The Producers, which is available right now, and then they'll compare it to Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit, which Adam and I both favorably reviewed last week. Every two weeks, a new movie pairing is offered by The Next Picture Show. They do a recent release and pair it with a classic. New episodes are available every Tuesday at midnight. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts or
1: at nextpictureshow.net. Massacre Theater is the part of our show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film-spotting T-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of last week's Massacre. Freulein Doctor, where is it? How did you get here? Where is it? I want it. You came back for the book? Why? My father didn't want it incinerated. So a lot of entries so far. There must have been some giveaways in the dialogue. Pretty well-known popular film, certainly among our audience, I would reckon. And we got some compliments, Josh, on your performance. I can't say which actor, of course, you were imitating, because that would give it away even further, but... I think the highest compliment you got was serviceable. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I aim for. Quite serviceable. So I'm going to take it. Thank you very much. Yeah, if you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is this coming Monday, December 2nd. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it on next week's show. What, what happened you to your head? Captain, can you tell me what happened to your head? Put it on your head. Uh... uh... They, uh, 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 there is, uh, It's okay. Take your
0: time. Take your time. There's a two centimeter laceration on the left eyebrow.
1: It's okay. Right. It's <laughs> okay. It's okay. Okay. I want you to look at me and I want you to breathe. Do you understand? Yeah, gotcha. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Is that a four centimeter? A very shook up Tom Hanks there with petty officer Danielle Albert in the Paul Greengrass film Captain Phillips. We get into our poll results now, looking specifically at the work of Tom Hanks and his work portraying real life figures, even if some of them aren't all that well known to us like Captain Phillips. We are looking ahead to. His performance as Mr. Rogers in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, a movie, Josh, that you have seen at this point. I have not, though it's opening this weekend, and I am eager to get a chance. You should be.
0: That's that's all I'll say for now,
1: for now. It looks like we may not get to that movie until after the Thanksgiving holiday. So these poll results will have to do for now. We asked you which Tom Hanks performance as a real life figure is his best. And we put the options in chronological order. Jim Lovell in Ron Howard's Apollo 13, Texas Congressman Charlie Wilson in Mike Nichols, Charlie Wilson's War, Walt Disney in Saving Mr. Banks. Captain Richard Phillips in Captain Phillips, James B. Donovan in Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, or my beloved Chesley Sully Sullenberger in Clint Eastwood's Sully. Finally, there is Ben Bradley in Spielberg's The Post. Josh, how did it come out?
0: Well, some anti-Disney perception here Mm. in the poll because Walt Disney was in last place with 2% of the vote. Then came Ben Bradley with 3%. Charlie Wilson received 6% of the vote. Sully, I know you didn't vote this way, Adam, but it probably still hurts you a little bit. Sully only received 7% of the vote. Then we have James B. Donovan from Spielberg's Bridge of Spies receiving 9% of the vote. A jump here to second place. Jim Lovell with 20% of the vote, but running away with this really was Captain
1: Richard Phillips' received 45% of the vote. Christopher Williams wrote in, Tom Hanks is one of our great actors, but part of that appeal is that you can always see his Tom Hanksness shining through, even if it's the gruff Ben Bradley of The Post, the calm Sully, or the worried but competent Jim Lovell in Apollo 13. There's always a line back to the competence, calm, and decency that Hanks brings with him, which is why Captain Phillips is my answer. For most of the runtime of Paul Greengrass's movie, Hanks plays the typical Hanks role. He's scared, but he's smart. He's thinking through his situation, acting wisely, and being the man we expect. But in the film's final moments, after the danger is over, Hanks delivers a performance we've never seen from him. Phillips, now safe, goes into shock. He's confused, disoriented, unable to get coherent words out, It's a performance that deflates our notions that our heroes are never scared and always composed. It's raw and scary, and it lets Greengrass's movie end with a glimpse of what true heroism is, calm that sometimes masks sheer terror. It's one of Hank's greatest performances. Well said.
0: Yep, right on there, Christopher. Here's another note from Darren. That last scene in Captain Phillips is a rare example of being too good, so good that it made us forget just how powerful the rest of the movie had been. Hanks has had a great career, but he may as well use the last five minutes of this movie for his entire career highlight reel. Fear, shock, dread, grief, worry, relief, gratitude, confusion. Hanks delivers each of these emotions within seconds
1: of each other, and they have never felt more true. It really is remarkable, and it's so good, and now it's been praised so much by people like you and me and our listeners that I fear it's almost become a cliché to talk about how great the end of Captain Phillips is and those final kind of silent few minutes. With Tom Hanks and that camera just trained on him. But maybe in this case, the cliche is for a reason.
0: Well, and to Darren's point, it probably doesn't help to go watch this on YouTube. You know, you might you need sort of that context, what everything that uh, Christopher was talking Mm -hmm. about to
1: lead you to that final point. I think it still holds up, though. It's fantastic. Looking ahead a couple of weeks, we are going to be wrapping up our 9 from 99 series with none other than Star Wars Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. Yippee! For this series, we've been revisiting nine films from the great movie year 1999, so 20-year anniversaries for these films. And we were thinking that we might do a top five list that was actually kind of the official top 10 ranking, our final ranking, having revisited these films of the best films of 99. And our producer, Sam, had a good idea, as is often the case. He suggested that maybe we do it more like a marathon awards segment where we give out are not only best picture, but our best lead performance, our best supporting performance, our best scene. It's going to be tough because we have watched some great stuff in this series so far, but I think it will be rewarding. And just to clarify, for me, as I start to think about this,
0: yeah. we're going to limit this to our 9 from 99 films, we right? We're not opening it up to all it's of... the series. Okay.
1: Yeah, right. that's really how it is like a marathon. Yeah, we're looking back sense. on it and going to reflect on all of the standout performances and moments. So here are the movies we'll be considering then. The
0: Matrix, that was the first one we did. Then we moved on to The Sixth Sense, followed by Fight Club, The Blair Witch Project, Being John Malkovich, Eyes Wide Shut, American Beauty, Magnolia, and yes, The Phantom Menace. Now, Adam, I won't ask you to name it, but and I I will also leave the possibility that The Phantom Menace, after you revisit it, could become the best movie for you from Uh the series. Yeah, maybe... Save your money. Where we are now, do you have a sense of what your number one is for sure? Do you have to think about this a little bit? do oh, no. Na- don't name it. Just... Yeah, no,
1: I would have to think about it okay. because it's between three of the titles there. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I've got sort of a rough ranking going on Letterboxd, a private list, and I haven't decided on that order of the top three yet. Now, we always point out that these questions are inherently flawed. Sometimes we even redo them, and this one is tough because – we're combining lead and supporting performance for this question. We're going to get to asking you your favorite performance from the marathon. And not only is it tough to pick a winner anyway, from all these great candidates, you had to start by picking the nominees and the nominees are things we could debate over the course of a couple episodes. So, this whole question probably should be discarded and we're going to get all the emails about how we failed. Once again, no one will be happy. No, but we did our best. And this is why we always have the disclaimer that you've got the other category. Yes. If we got it so wrong that the performance that you revere the most somehow didn't get included, you can write it in and we will make sure your voice is heard. So I think what we'll do, Josh, as we did limit it to one performance from each movie. You'll list the candidate from that film. I will note some of the supporting performances that were maybe tough to leave out, but will be there for you if you want to vote other.
0: Yes, you can throw those in the other category. Here are your legit choices in this poll question. We're going to start with Brad Pitt in Fight Club.
1: So I don't think that one's too hard. Sure, you could go Ed Norton, you could go Helena Bonham Carter. There are obviously a lot of other people in that ensemble. Don't you think most people would agree Pitt is the standout performance from yeah, Fight Club? Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. And
0: the same I would say for our next option, it's from the Blair Witch Project, has
1: to be Heather Donahue, right? I think so. You could go Joshua Leonard, you could go Michael C. Williams, the two guys she is camping with, but especially based on our review, we were very enthusiastic about Heather Donahue's performance. I think she's the clear nominee there things get a little tougher or should
0: i say a lot tougher with being john malkovich now uh i don't think i weighed in on this so i'm just gonna step back and let you guys take all the shrapnel here sure you went with john
1: cusack well it was hard and sam and i really did debate this you know we did josh and ultimately we decided that he is the lead of the movie it's a very good performance it warrants recognition we would not begrudge anyone suggesting that actually it's one of these three supporting players who gives the better performance in that film. You could go Malkovich, Malkovich. himself. You could go Keener. Or honestly, my pick, Cameron Diaz. Yeah, did you, you lobby for Cameron Diaz? I think Cameron is the best performance in that film. But again, there's four really good ones. So I imagine we will get some grief for Cusack, but we ultimately decided he should be recognized. Okay, from The Matrix, pretty obvious. Keanu Reeves. I think so, yeah. All right. Fishburne, maybe, Carrie Ann Moss, Maybe, but that's Keanu's movie. Eyes Wide Shut, you could have a lot
0: of debate between Kidman and Cruz. Your official option is Kidman. Yep. I concur. Philip Seymour Hoffman is the choice for Magnolia. Holy cow, how did you... (laughs)
1: I just want the number of Slack exchange messages to (laughs) to arrive at that. Sam knew better than to bring this one up, but he also probably knew that I would just default to Philip Seymour Hoffman. The only way it kind of becomes an easy choice is because it's Philip Seymour Hoffman and he's so good. But that said, there are at least two others when you talk about Magnolia that you have to consider, and that's John C. Mm Riley and also Tom Cruise. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know. You think Cruz maybe I should be in there? Probably should be Cruz. Okay.
0: But this is fine. I'll, if I go that way, I'll vote in Fine, just go ahead. I'm not going to complain. Criticize our poll question. Fine. <laughs> From the sixth
1: sense, your choice is Tony Collette. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I agree with that, even as Haley Joel Osmond and Bruce Willis are both very good in the film and are the stars of the film. So I imagine we might get some grief for that one as well.
0: American Beauty, another ensemble, many directions. The official option here, Wes Bentley. I think we both probably gave the highest praise to him. Yeah, in him our and Suvari, Suvari. Yeah, yeah.
1: So but that's your option: Kevin Spacey, Annette Bening, or Thora Birch. And Josh, because we haven't mentioned it yet, you could go other. You, Natalie Portman, super fan. Padme Amidala. <laughs> oh, go ahead. You know I'm filling in Jake Lloyd here. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> I think we should just end there. Hard to not give love to Tom Cruise overall in the poll question. Maybe even take him out of it and say it should be the Tom Cruise Memorial 1999 poll because of Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut. Two great performances in the same year. Yeah, that's true. I like like that thought. Okay. We do encourage you to vote now, which you can do at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, even if it's to tell us how much we screwed up with these options— we hope you'll let us know where you're listening from, and you can vote now at filmspotting.net. Hey. Yeah. Right. I was trying to be nice. Wacko! I, I like your friends. I know it. I'm a warm person. I was... I know that. I'm not. One of those stiffs that you like with a nose is up in the air. and boom, boom, boom with a nose is up in the air. Our good friends Jenna Rollins and Peter Falk from John Cassavetes' A Woman Under the Influence from 1974, helping us transition into our top five this week. Inspired by Noah Baumbach's marriage story, we are sharing our top five movies about marriage, probably setting the tone there for this list in our yes. choices, movies where the marriage is rife with conflict. And if it wasn't rife with conflict, then it probably wouldn't be much of a story. Now, this top five is one we have done in the past. In fact, a very, very long time ago, episode 28 of the show, long before you join, Josh. This would have been in 2005, the first year of the show. And it was a tie-in with our review of Ingmar Bergman's latest, at the time, Saraband. It was a film that was basically a sequel 30 years later yeah. to Scenes from a Marriage, a movie that definitely had a big influence on Back* and Marriage Story. And sometimes when I look back on lists from that long ago, <laughs> I can cringe a little bit at some of my choices. I don't know that there's too many top five lists that I feel like I just completely failed, but occasionally one or two choices I think, man... So many more movies I've seen now, so sure. much more experience. I'm so much wiser. I'd have such a better list. And here I am getting a chance to make right. Except I don't feel too embarrassed at all Let about my hear list. are the choices. Yeah, you so. I had Kramer versus Kramer. Okay. Number five, definitely a movie about divorce. I had Husbands and Wives, the Woody Allen film at number four, Raising Arizona, the Cone Brothers film. Interesting. At number three, A Woman Under the Influence was my number two choice. That was one of the Cassavetes films I had seen before we did our recent marathon on his work. And finally, I had Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage at sure. number one. So I think easily those first two. Scenes from a Marriage and the Cassavetes need to be considered in any list of the best movies about marriage.
0: Are you setting those all aside? So of you course, five, I'm setting five five all ones.
1: of those aside. I have five new choices and we'll see if in 10 or 12 years I regret these choices. I don't think I will, Josh, but why don't you get us started? All right. So yeah,
0: my my first crack at this um, and it was hard. I mean, there are so many good options here. I think what distinguishes the five that ended up making my list, sort of the framework that helped me narrow it down, is that I have five films that, for me, each reveal a certain truth, at least as I've experienced it, about marriage. So yeah. each of these have either a moment or just the whole
1: cumulative effect is, oh, it gets this. yeah, And it yeah. gets it really right. Yeah, I had it too. The way I phrased it was what aspect or nuance of marriage does the movie offer?
0: Yeah. So I'm looking for those truths. I'll probably talk about those for each of these picks. Now, because this is such a rich topic, these are all great movies Mm -hmm. too. So I think every movie on my list, I've given four out of four stars to. So these are also just on their surface, great films. At number five, well, it turns out that master Indian filmmaker Satyajit Ray, we did a 2014 marathon on him. He made a BUNCH OF GREAT MOVIES IN WHICH MARRIAGE PLAYED A PART. On Twitter, when we asked for suggestions, Timothy Sedlicek suggested 1964's Sharulata, The Lonely Wife, which I love. Greg F. suggested 1963's The Big City, which I love even more. Both certainly count as marriage movies. I wouldn't be surprised if you go one of those directions, Adam. But my choice for this list is Apur Sansar, also known as The World of Opu, and it's the final installment in Ray's Opu trilogy. I am committing... A violation here. You Let are. me just put this out there. <laughs> I totally forgot. I'm throwing when the thinking flag about this list. That the entire trilogy is in the pantheon, thus ineligible. So, sorry. I, I realized that too late. Didn't have time to switch things out, and just honestly, just wanted to talk again is about an infidelity. Apur this is an
1: infidelity. I'm not sure I our will, relationship can handle. I will accept my punishment.
0: <laughs> there is, though, this middle section in Apur Sansar. That is so exquisitely joyful and romantic. And given all of the heaviness of marriage story and a lot of these movies we're going to talk about, I just wanted something like this to include on the list. Um, It alone almost erases all the heartache that we've otherwise seen in the Opu trilogy up to this point. And it does involve the first days of a young married couple. Uh, So Opu here is a young man. Played by Sumitra Chatterjee. And at the start of the film, we see him fall into this hastily arranged marriage to a wealthy young woman named Aparna, played by Sharmila Tagore. So after the wedding, they go back to his dumpy apartment in Calcutta, and there's a bit of a rough start for a while, but they soon find themselves to be perfectly matched. And Ray captures this in just a lovely montage of bare bones domestic bliss. They're feeding each other. They're fanning each other. They barely are able to look at anything other than each other. And so the truth that Apoor Sansar gets about marriage is a good one, a positive one. On your best days, it can feel like you're the only two people in the world. And romantic comedies try to capture that. um, But I can't think of any that really get that feeling quite as well as Apoor Sansar. So that
1: is my number five, violation or not. Yeah, you got to this top five list first. You pointed out your list in our Slack over the weekend, and I was very angry with you because you had a couple choices that would have been strong contenders for me. I hadn't started formulating my list yet, and I would completely forgotten about the Pantheon and just thought, how am I going to do this list without the world of Opu? I yeah. mean, it's not just one of my favorite movies about marriage. It's one of my favorite movies ever, but I'm going to let you have it, and as you said, it makes it easier when Ray made... At least one other masterpiece about marriage. We will get to that in a little bit. I think I was in a similar frame of mind as you, Josh, with my number five. I wanted at least one film that was going to be a little bit lighter, a little bit more joyful and My pick is The Thin Man from 1934, Nick and Nora Charles, the couple. It was part of our screwball comedy marathon back in 2006. And it's funny because I had to do the setup for Sam at the time for that review. And I noted that it was a popular choice among listeners in connection to the top five drinking movies we did on episode 86. But it also would have been a good candidate for top five screen duos, which we did on episode 22. A case could even be made that Nick Charles belonged on the list we did on episode 34, which was our top five badasses. And now I wonder, well, why can't I put Nora Charles on the badass list? Doesn't have to be just Nick. She's a badass herself. And finally... It could have been on our top five movies about marriage on episode 28. And I actually asked Sam how bad he felt about having not seen this movie before forming all these lists. It turned out we both were big fans of this film. And this is my shot to revise history, I guess. I did focus for the rest of my picks on movies that are about marriage. And this is a detective story. But when you think about The Thin Man. Do you really think about the detective story, which is about a missing inventor and this husband and wife team that almost get killed trying to find him? No, you think about the relationship. You think about Nick and Nora Charles and you think about them equally. And that's the key nuance here was this notion of equality in a relationship, true equality and alchemy that sense of chemistry, that intangible thing where you have two people who come together and become true partners. And of course, they're partners in trying to solve this case as well. But every other choice on my list, Josh, you're going to see films that deal with the harsher realities of even semi or mostly successful marriages, the complexities of human relationships that also are personal contracts. And I did want one that was just full-blown fun but also showcased an ideal marriage even if it's a full-blown fantasy which I do think is what we get here with William Powell and Myrna Loy as Nick and Nora two of my favorite lines from this film that get at the core of what I love about their relationship early in the film I think it's maybe in that opening scene Nora shows up and says how many drinks have you had and he says this will make six martinis and she turns to the waiter and says all right will you bring me five more martinis Leo line them up right here that's what he's having, that's what she's going to have by God, too. And then later, they're talking to a lieutenant who says, you got a pistol permit. Nick says, no. He says, ever heard of the Sullivan Act? And Nora says, oh, that's all right. We're married. (laughs) I mean, that's that's that screwball comedy banter Mm -hmm. that makes these films. And this film in particular, such. A treat. I actually came across an article from September 2011 in the National Post, the Canadian newspaper. I don't know what the point of the article was, honestly, even after reading it, but it was about Nick and Nora Charles, and it was called Nick and Nora's Infinite Marriage. And I'm not shocked at all to find, at least according to this article, that people were so convinced, fans of these films were so convinced that William Powell and Myrna Loy were really a couple, that they were sure that they were married in real life, hmm. that they had to be in a relationship with each other. And it turns out, of course, that it's a, that it was a purely professional relationship. So that's the reality. They weren't really a couple at all. The movie gives us the fantasy version of marriage. And that's what I love about The Thin Man. Pretty girl.
0: Yeah, she's a very nice type.
1: You got types?
0: Only you, darling. Lanky brunettes with wicked jaws. So it sounds like those were our sunny picks and it's time to move into choppier waters. Yeah. Number four, I have Away From Her. And every year that I get older, the more astonished I am at just the wisdom that Sarah Polly showed in her writing, directing debut. I think she was age 27 at this point. And it is true, she's adapting here a great short story by Alice Munro, The Bear Came Over the Mountain. And she's also working with two seasoned actors, Julie Christie and Gordon Pinsett. But still, this is a film of deep knowingness uh, from someone who you would— still think had a lot to experience yet. Uh, A Christian Pinsett play a couple whose 45-year marriage has settled into a comfortable and tender intimacy despite certain troubles we learn about that they did endure in the past. Uh, Then Fiona, the wife, begins to show symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And in addition just to the medical challenges, these troubles also revisit in disturbing new ways and just upend what the two of them thought was this settled life that they had together. Now, this did make my list of top five female-directed debuts in November 2017, so if you want to hear more on the film itself, that's episode 657. But the truth that this movie gets at for this list—and again, it's one that was corralled by a 20-something who's working with great material and collaborators—the truth is that marriage is never going to get easy. You're not going to get to that point. It might, in fact— be the hardest thing you ever do, Uh, yet part of what it means to be married is to keep doing that work all the way through to the end. Underneath all the complications that uh, away from her captures, there are past betrayals, there's the disease, there's aging itself. It still recognizes this truth, I think, especially near the end, after Fiona has moved into a memory care facility and she begins to drift further and further away from Grant, There's a sequence where there's this one moment of awful, but at the same time, sort of wonderful clarity. You could have just driven away. Just driven away without a care in the world.
1: And forsook me. forsaken me. Forsaken. Not a chance.
0: I'm pretty sure we played that clip before, but uh, I wish I hadn't because it's it's really even more fitting for this list. And it's always worth hearing Christie's delivery there. So
1: away from her, my
0: number four, don't wait for marriage to get easy.
1: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that that day ever comes. Yeah, that is a great pick. I love that film and I love those performances. My number four, I'm going to be very brief here because it's a film that even though it came out in 2014, I still feel like not enough people have seen and- to get into the weeds too much on it would really ruin the experience. And maybe after listening to this top five list, people will be curious to check out this film. I think it was the debut film from director Charlie McDowell. And I know that I like this movie more than you did, though. Oh, I feel like you were favorable on it. Too. The, one it's the one I love. One I love. Yeah. Okay. The one I, I love did, from, yeah. as I said, 2014 starring Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss as a couple who are going through a rough patch. They're kind of trying to recapture some of their past glory And they are more passionate times and they're seeing a therapist who's played by Ted Danson and he suggests they go to this weekend getaway and have some fun, hopefully, and maybe reignite this passion that has gone a little bit dormant. And here's the truth. I'm really not going to say more than that. That's the basic plot. That's all you need to go going in. They go to the house and some really strange things start to happen.
0: That was a little bit of a weird fight last night i know i don't really understand what happened but i feel like maybe we just talk it up to like some bad pot and alcohol <laughs> combo put it behind us and not let it ruin the trip
1: agreed totally cool that being
0: said it was one of the weirder fights we've had like
1: oh my god i know
0: crazy right i mean right? I, I still don't fully understand whether You were so drunk and stoned that you thought we had sex or were you just making a joke and it backfired? Honestly, I think it was just one of those things, you know, one of those things.
1: And when you come out of that film, I said this when we talked about it on the show. I said it in my letterbox review at the time. If you watch that film with your significant other, as I did, whether you're married or not, if you have been together for any amount of time, I imagine that the person you watch it with will turn to you just as my wife did and say, okay, so what's the best version of me? They will ask that question or some form of that question after seeing this film. And I could probably give you the advice to not take the bait and don't answer that question. But if you want to have a really, I suppose, honest and interesting conversation with your spouse, you could try to answer that question because the truth there, the fundamental truth there is no matter how happy your marriage is, no matter how much you do genuinely love that other person, there are going to be imperfections. There are going to be quote unquote flaws. There are going to be things that you probably wish you could change about them. You may discover new ones as you go through the marriage and whether or not you ever feel like those are things you need to bring out into the open, or those are things that are forced out into the open. That's different for every couple. That might be just a secret that you take To your grave. But in this case, the one I love, it's a film that really forces you to not only, I would say, Josh, think about it in terms of your spouse, but think about it, I think, the way Sarah did, which if you're really connecting with the material the way I did, you're not going, wow, what would I change about Sarah? I'm going, what would Sarah change about me? What what should Sarah want to change about me? How do I need to be? Better. So, the one I love, maybe a little bit of a surprise choice here, but a movie, at least on this topic of marriage, I found pretty profound.
0: Yeah, overall, I didn't go for the movie, but I did note that it gets at a truth very similar to what you were just saying. Basically, the gap between the spouse we want to be and the spouse we are That's it. can feel huge, mm-hmm. right? So, I do think the movie touches on that for sure. Okay, so we are up to number three. If marriage, as I said with Away From Her, is never going to get easy, if it's going to be a series of ups and downs, then the good ones are going to have to involve reconciliation. And one of the most delightful movies about a married couple making up is 1937's The Awful Truth. This stars Cary Grant and Irene Dunn as Jerry and Lucy Warriner, a husband and wife who— like the couple we meet in Marriage Story, are in the process of divorce. There are essentially two movies going on here. There's the one where Lucy and Jerry are trying to find new partners while simultaneously sabotaging each other's efforts at romance. And then there's the one where Lucy and Jerry continue to share glances, inside jokes, instinctual smiles before they remember they're not supposed to be smiling at each other. Basically, no matter who else is around, they're always the most compatible couple in the room. Now, the director, Leo McCary, he stages a really brilliant comic sequence near the end that I wanted to highlight uh, and why I wanted to put this on the list. This is when Lucy and Jerry, for these really convoluted plot reasons, they have to stay in the same country house in adjoining rooms on the night that their divorce will be finalized at midnight. Once they're settled in their beds, the door between these two rooms, it keeps opening. Like the wind does it and then there's this cat, all sorts of stuff comes into play. And each time it happens, they have a clear sight line of the other person just sitting there in their bed. So there's a lot of comic business about this where they try and fail to keep the door closed. Eventually, they just realize they're going to have to connect with each other on some level, and this leads to, here's another, speaking of the thin man, great screwball exchange that hints at reconciliation.
1: You're all confused, aren't you? Mm
0: -hmm. Aren't you? No. Well, you should be because you're wrong about things being different because they're not the same. Things are different, except in a different way. You're still the same, only I've been a fool. But I'm not now. Uh. So long as I'm different, don't you think that well, maybe things could be the same again, only a little different, huh?
1: You mean that, Jerry?
0: Vina Del Mar doing the screenplay there. She's adapting a play by Arthur Richman. And basically, the simple truth here, marriage means making up. Uh, in a way, marriage doesn't become a marriage until you've you know, hit brokenness of some kind and have, yeah. by some grace, been able to make it to the other side. I think the awful truth is this great farce about Um, somewhat begrudgingly making it to the other side and these two being surprised to find themselves there but also um, just really
1: sort of overjoyed Mm. with it as well. So I guess you could see this as a positive pick too. For sure, yeah. Yeah. No, good pick. A movie that was also part of our Screwball Comedy Marathon back in 2006. My number three choice would be a great pairing with your number four. You talk about a couple that – hopes or imagines that they are absolutely in that settling part of their marriage where their life is what it is and it is joyful enough and they believe there is a firm foundation and that foundation gets rocked a little bit by a revelation it's the movie that was my number three film of 2015 andrew hagg's 45 years and i'm sure this was discussed by people who talked about the movie at the time it's fascinating to see this For what it was, which was a follow-up to his debut film, a movie we liked a lot called Weekend, which was about two gay men who meet and have this kind of fling and this connection. And then they go their separate ways. It's a relationship that never gets to have a history, at least a history that we're going to see. And then we come to 45 years, a movie that is all about that history. And the truth for me that it really showcases is the way a marriage can have that kind of quiet comfort that two people can have together. But there being some cracks and cracks that can potentially develop into fractures. And it's not by accident that I use words like crack and fracture because that's kind of integral to the plot. You've got Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtney as the husband and wife, and they are supposed to be celebrating their 45th wedding anniversary when a letter arrives that says a body has been found. From his past, from over 45 years ago, the woman that he was madly in love with before he met his wife, Kate, and they were on a trip together, hiking somewhere, and she fell between a glacier and obviously died her body was never found they have now recovered it and just that body it's almost honestly like a ghost story in a way where now this body comes yeah, up and haunts them right and they have to relive and revisit some choices that were made before they even knew each other and then things that are sort of kept secret throughout their marriage there are a number of Devastating scenes in this movie at our end of the year rap party. I talked about a slideshow scene in the attic that I thought was a scene of the year candidate a music moment from the end of the film. Hey, takes a very subtle approach here. It's a two hander. It's these two people doing a lot of talking and doing a lot of talking within the space of this home that they have made together. You get a lot of kind of simple longer takes lingering with this couple, but there is just one cut in it that really floors me. It's when they're in the living room, they're sitting down separate parts of the room and she's reading and he comes and kind of curiously sits down right next to her. And Tom Courtney looks at her very hard for a second. And she says, what, what is it? And he clearly has something to say. And he says that he doesn't. And Then you hear his voice, even though his mouth isn't moving, you hear his voice say, there's something I want to tell you. And we're seeing them in profile. He's clearly not talking. We hear that voice. It turns out that we then cut to another angle and that audio is just a bridge to him finally starting to say whatever it is he had to say. You don't know in that moment how much time has actually passed. Have they been sitting there for 10 seconds together or 10 minutes Mm or or an hour, you really don't know how long it took him to kind of build up the courage to finally say what he has to say. That's something I want to tell you. Okay. You know, I, I feel sure I've told you before, but it was a long time ago, so I, yeah, I could be wrong. Okay, go on. Yeah, um, I, I was her next of kin. What do you mean? Uh,
0: Officially, I I was her next of kin. I'm sure I told you this before. I think I
1: remember her husband being another woman's next of kin. Why? Why what? Why were you her next of kin? Because they thought we were married. Who did? The authorities people. What made them think that? We, We told them we were. There's something about that really efficient use of ellipsis there that seems so appropriate to the film, which, as I said, is about the past encroaching on the present and possibly affecting their future. And another true moment there in any relationship, there being some secret. There being something that one person doesn't want to tell the other person but knows they really have to and they don't want to do it under the guise of wanting to protect her when really selfishly. You're protecting yourself, which is what he's doing there, I think. And these are the type of dramas that are playing out in households everywhere, every day and will forever.
0: Yeah, you're right. That would make a really great pairing with Away From Her, just the way it recognizes this sort of tranquil domesticity should never be taken for granted. Um, That's maybe when those cracks start to, to turn into fault lines or something Something bigger. Okay, I'm at number two on my list. I won't spend a lot of time on this because I did go with Eyes Wide Shut, which we just spent so much time talking about as part of our 9 from 99 series. I wouldn't say this movie is anti-marriage, but it's – in a lot of ways, it's pro-marriage. But it's certainly the movie that's honest about the difficulties of marriage and the reality that marriages fail for all sorts of reasons, that sometimes the right call might be – uh, the hard one of deciding not to stay together. Uh, the couple here, of course, Bill and Alice, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, they really find themselves at this point early on in the film. It's it's the it kicks off the entire rest of the movie, this late night conversation that threatens to peel away some of the masks that they've been wearing for each other. So this is, you know, they're at this point well before Bill throws a fit and decides to go sneak into a creepy sex party. Uh, they have some issues, fair to say. Now, you might point out that After all this craziness, Bill and Alice still seem to be moving themselves towards some sort of reconciliation by the end of the film. I think that's true. But as I noted um, in our review, and we did spend a lot of time talking about marriage in that review. It's worth noting uh, if listeners haven't checked that out yet. But as I noted there is that they've still got a lot of work to do at that toy store in that final scene when they get home. The reality is they might not make it. I mean, we – my instinct coming out of Eyes Wide Shut is, whew, you know, you you breathe a sigh of relief, but the more you think about it and realize what they have ahead of them and where they're at, I mean, that – This is a downer pick in a lot of ways because the truth is that you
1: might not make it. Um, It's just it's it's just a sad reality. I totally get that reading or suggesting that it could be read that way. And I see it so much more hopeful. I see it as they finally 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 come through it. it. Yeah, they finally come through it. And now that they have been forced to confront reality, Mm -hmm. actual reality, the honesty of each person's viewpoint and i suppose mindset of their marriage i think it's going to lead them to better things that's my hope they're definitely in a better place for sure (laughs) still got a ways to go yeah so my number two does go back to Satyajit ray you mentioned the film it is the big city from 1963 i love this film, what a great filmmaker and the truth of marriage that we're seeing explored here, I think, is what can happen, the upheaval and the angst that can happen when you have a marriage that's in transition, when one partner decides to break from their assigned role in the relationship and all the drama that can unfold from that. This film stars Madhabi Mukherjee. As Arati and her husband Subrata is played by Anil Chatterjee. And we talked about this a lot during our marathon and this review. The movie forces us to think about what her role, what Arati's role is as a woman in their household, within their marriage. She's a wife, she's a mother, she's a daughter in law she's a sister-in-law, she's a housekeeper, she's a cook, she's a nurse. She's all of these things. And we see the toll that all of those roles take on her and they all have prescribed actions and needs that come with it. And because of his struggles, her husband not making the money that he should and they're having trouble making ends meet, she discovers that she could work outside the home, that she could go make some money as well. And she does that. She goes to work as a saleswoman and actually has some success. So now we see her take on new roles as an employee, as a co-worker, as a friend, and actually a supervisor, and the big one that causes so much trouble at home as the breadwinner. And she's trying to navigate all these while also navigating all those other roles. She can't just abandon them. And these new ones don't have the history, the decades and centuries of history that Tell you what type of housewife you're supposed to be in this culture, what type of housekeeper or daughter-in-law you're supposed to be. She's making all this up as she goes, which is both what makes it so thrilling and what makes it so hard. I mentioned she becomes the breadwinner. There's a scene where she tells her husband that she's gotten a raise. And at least the English translation that we get on screen in the subtitles is, great, the wife comes home a hero, the husband's a zero. That's how he feels. He feels completely worthless now because of her new role. And she's enjoying her work. She is successful and she's being useful to the family and she loves that and his kind of self-pity and despondency really does hurt her. And there are A couple of scenes, Josh, that I know you remember well from this movie that really get to the heart of this. And it's a fairly early one after coming home from the job. And she's just kind of recounting her routine, the details of the job, very casually to her husband. And she says, you wouldn't recognize me on the job. And that piques his interest. And he says, what about at home? Would I recognize you at home? And Mukherjee, just what a performance. Yeah. Very slyly, almost sensually slowly approaches him enters the frame that's just on his face sharing that very close space with him it's a very intimate exchange and very close to him very quietly says you don't recognize me and she brings up the mole on her face that of course he knows and when he says that it feels all familiar she points out that she's still the same housewife she does reassure him here in that moment now later when he's found the lipstick that she has put on to go out on her job as a saleswoman, something she's never used before. He gets a jab in at her. He doesn't even look at her as she's heading out the door. He says, you're not going to put on your lipstick. And this moment is so good. She throws the lipstick out the window. Mm -hmm. She doesn't need it. And she says, listen to me, do what you like, but please don't misunderstand me, darling. So it's at once sensitive. It's a plea to him, but it's emphatic and also defiant at the same time. It's an order. It's her telling her husband, don't misunderstand me. You can think what you want, but don't ever question my feelings for you or my loyalty to you and this family. Basically, don't ever do that again, is what she says to her husband here. And rewatching scenes from this, it's available on the Criterion channel. I almost didn't stop. I almost didn't get this list done just because I started re-watching The Big City. It's that good. Yeah, that scene with the lipstick was my
0: choice for most moving moment in the marathon. And I just can't recommend that marathon highly enough if we have relatively new listeners who didn't have a chance to go through those films with us. I think we probably both assumed we were going to encounter a masterpiece with the Opu trilogy. Right. But we saw, you know, The Big City, I would consider consider another one and really almost every film in it was just unbelievable so i'm glad that we have two ray i think it's very appropriate to have two ray picks for this list i'm at my number one which is sunrise a song of two humans i'm going to end with the best film to my mind on my list i mean this one is on my list of the best of all time and it probably holds the simplest truth for me
1: date night you may want to kill your wife at some point Is that where you're
0: going Date night is always a good idea, Adam. Yes. Always a good idea. This is F.W. Murnau's 1927 silent masterpiece. And yes, it begins with a portrait of marriage that's probably darker than Eyes Wide Shut, I would say. Uh, We have country man George O'Brien persuaded by a seductive city woman to murder his wife, played by Oscar winner Janet Gaynor. Spoiler alert, at the last minute, his conscience gets the better of him. Rather than throw her over the boat they're in, he paddles across the lake to the city, where his wife understandably flees. And then comes the movie's miracle. After finding his wife again, he repeatedly pleads for forgiveness as they walk around the city together. Ever so slowly she gives him another chance. There's this point where they are walking together, they stop at a church and they watch a wedding that's taking place and this causes the husband to tearfully renew his vows and Murnau stages the sequence so brilliantly because he he shifts things so that the marriage ceremony taking place suddenly becomes their ceremony, right? They they emerge from the church just as the bells are ringing, for example. And then what follows is this second honeymoon, essentially, in the city as the husband and wife, they celebrate their reunion by having their photograph taken. They dance at a fair. And Murnau captures all of this with a camera that's just radically free for its time. I mean, it's really astonishing when you think about it in the historical context. So yeah, don't wait for Attempted murder to get you out of the house, Adam. (laughs) Go on a date night just for the heck of it. Um, Sunrise, my number one movie
1: about marriage. It's an amazing film. And it's one that I was telling my wife was your number one as we were driving home from Marriage Story. And she asked me what it was about. And I gave her (laughs) the synopsis to my best recollection. She thinks I'm insane? And she thinks you're a crazy person. Did she get in touch with Debbie immediately? Like, are you okay? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) All right. My number one. You had to know it was coming, and here's my great indiscretion, Josh. I was so ready to pounce on you. I was going to pull out the whole Lebowski, this is not Nam, there are rules, you can't be breaking the rules by going with You're Pantheon movies for your list, even though I was the last person to do it. Completely unintentionally, but I put Apocalypse Now or something in the top five, forgetting it was in the Pantheon maybe last oh, yeah. year, right? Okay. So So I couldn't really give you grief without being a total hypocrite. And then guess what I go and do? I discover an hour or two before we sit down to record that my number one, of course, is also in the Pantheon. You know what would be great? If we had on our website a page that listed the movies in the Pantheon. Yeah. We should do that. Let's do that. Yeah. Let's do that. We're morons is the (laughs) lesson here. But you know what? I'm going to stand by it because any list that's about the best movies about marriage needs The World of Opu on it. And I think it needs Before Midnight, the third film in Linklater's Before Trilogy. Another trilogy. There you go, Josh. All three of the films from each trilogy are in our pantheon. And if you follow film spotting on Twitter, or maybe even if you don't, you may know that my Ethan Hawke tweet, a quote from my interview with him last year for the movie Blaze. You're famous now. It went viral. It went, you know, I'm not bragging, but it it, semi-viral anyway. Big numbers for... A film spotting tweet, let's say, and it was all about his great bit of wisdom about how dads shouldn't be worried about their daughter's sexuality and don't be the dad with the shotgun. Let them be their own shotgun and let them make mistakes. It was great stuff. And the context of that answer, though, was really just a kind of dumb question for me about whether or not my daughter, Sophie, who was 14 at the time, was ready to watch before sunrise. And since that time, since I interview Sophie has seen before sunrise, she's seen it a lot. She's obsessed with the movie, Josh, as you know. And she's so enamored with it that she's not sure she wants to watch even before sunset. Mm. She knows its reputation. She knows people like me love it. Maybe even love it more than sunrise, which she can't comprehend. But her attitude is before sunrise is perfect. Why mess with it? I don't want to know what happens to them. I think that's probably how a lot of us felt until we saw sunset And then we thought, okay, well, somehow that movie's perfect too. So she's resistant. I've always said, you know, it's only a matter of time. We're going to watch it. You have to see it. But you know what I haven't decided? What's always been in the back of my mind? Whether or not... I'm going to have her watch before midnight. Yeah. Whether or not that's going to follow. I don't know if you should do it to her. Not because it's a bad film. No, exactly. Or whether or not we're both just going to live in denial about it actually being a trilogy. There isn't a third film here, Sophie. It is more adult. Sure. I could argue that as a 15-year-old, maybe she's not ready for it. It's harsher. It's more cynical. But mainly, I think I'm just protecting her from seeing what happens to Jesse and Mm -hmm. Celine. From letting her see what can happen to love, as instructive as it may actually be. I started this top five with fantasy, The Thin Man, and I think we come down here with the bookend of the reality of Before Midnight.
0: Oh, and You know something? You're just like the little girls and everybody else. You want to live inside some fairy tale, all right? I'm just trying to make things better here, all right? I tell you that I love you unconditionally. Mm -hmm. I tell you that you're beautiful. I tell you that your ass looks great when you're 80. huh I'm trying to make you laugh. Okay. I put up with plenty of your And if you think I'm just some dog who's going to keep coming back, then you're wrong. But if you want true love, uh, then this is it. This is real life. It's not perfect, but it's real. And if you can't see it, then you're blind, all right? If I give up.
1: The key there from the end of Before Midnight is Jesse saying true love and pointing out that true love is not necessarily... What we think of as the fantasy or the storybook version, it's not perfect. The fundamental nature of true love is that it's imperfect and it's hard. And I did find a great article. A.O. Scott, great critic from The New York Times, of course, wrote an article after this movie came out where he tied it into a few other movies, including Amore, the Michael Hanukkah Mm. film. And the headline of the article was Marriage the Job. And he said this, the flirtation that began 18 years before on a train to Vienna and resumed in Paris, a prickly and contentious meeting of minds and hearts has hardened into a power struggle. And the negotiation of power is what gives substance to modern marriage stories, whether comic or dramatic. I do think that's the fundamental truth here, that any relationship, certainly a marriage is on some level about power, whether you mean it to or not, certainly not in kind of the corporate takeover sense of it, but. It's a negotiation. Someone in a relationship is going to have to give. And this is what we see in Marriage Story. You talked about it with Nicole's character saying she got smaller. Someone else is going to potentially or at times going to have to thrive for the relationship to work. And someone is going to have to sacrifice. They're going to have to give just a little bit of themselves. And that's that's the work of marriage. That's the trick, ultimately, of marriage that before midnight, after Certainly a lot of contentiousness and a lot of prickliness eventually does come around to. Well, as to the question whether or not, Sophie, should watch it, you're
0: just going to have to get in touch with your personal Dr. Spock give give ethan hawk a yeah.
1: call text him and, yeah. and see if he thinks she should watch it but or you not you know he'll say of course well there stop, you go stop protecting her <laughs> there It's you just go. me being one of the dads protecting my daughter's innocence then she needs to see what the world's really like you have your answer okay those are our top five films about marriage josh i know you have some honorable mentions Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I can give you my six
0: through ten for sure. Um, Bergman scenes from a marriage. I didn't do this list before, and so it wasn't on there then. It probably should have been on here now, but I knew it would get mentioned. So uh, in the mood for love, here's where more Pantheon screw-ups. I really thought about that for this list. Assumed it was in the Pantheon. It's not apparently. There's been multiple times we've assumed that's in the Pantheon, and it's not. Okay. Well, anyway, I considered it. The Incredibles I paired with Up... And, you know— Wow. Incredibles is a great choice. Yeah. And up it's, as well. The Incredibles I feel like i uh, talked about a lot and, and we even talked about it when Incredibles 2 came up within the context of Marriage specifically. So that's gotten a lot of attention but that is an honorable mention for me. Here's a smaller one that I don't know if it's ever come up on the show but Lisa Cholodenko's The Kids Are Alright. Mm-hmm. Um, really strong film um, and Marriage is it's a family film but Marriage is definitely sure. at the core there. And Elaine May's A New Leaf. I saw that come up as a suggestion <laughs> on social media. I I like to think it might not have if we hadn't done our Elaine May marathon. Um, Another marriage a, involving attempted murder. Yeah, okay, Josh. Yeah, I'm sensing a pattern. I don't know what that's all about. But uh, real quickly here, certified copy, I thought about 45 years for sure. The Cassavettis that I would have put on faces? this is probably Faces. Sam um, added on
1: his top five list back in 06.
0: You know what else Sam had on that list? Actually, You know what else he had, which was a very smart pick? The Secret Lives of Dentists very small film he's always loved that film oh it's so good i still haven't watched it it's so good and absolutely about marriage so private life which i praised i think last year right did it make my top 10 i believe so um and how about fantastic mr fox you got a little bit
1: of that in there right (laughs) that should be put in the penalty box what that movie should never be allowed to be brought up again on this show (laughs) my honorable mentions beyond the two or three that I was really angry at you for getting to first, not only The World of Apu, but Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, and Eyes Wide Shut, definitely in contention for me. I think Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story is good enough already to be thought of for this list. Voyage to Italy, the Roberto Rossellini film with Ingrid Bergman, another one I thought about. Mike Lee's Another Year. And another recent marathon film, one we talked about in relation to Before Midnight, Stanley Donnan's Two for the Road, a great yeah. marriage movie. And four titles here, one of which you mentioned, that maybe aren't totally eligible, but they should be in the conversation. Moonstruck, a movie I love with Nicolas Cage and Cher, mm-hmm. though more about a pending marriage. Certified Copy is the one that you also said, that great film from Abbas Kiristami that we don't really know If it is about marriage, if it is about marriage or not. That's the beauty of that movie. How about Rosemary's Baby? Mm -hmm. Going back to Cassavetes with Mia Farrow, maybe not really a movie about marriage, but a movie that certainly about as a listener way back in 2005 pointed out in response to our list. It's a movie about the betrayal of marriage, the betrayal of trust in a marriage. And I don't know that you can betray someone in a more egregious way. The John Cassavetes does in Rosemary's Baby. And finally, another one I said maybe not eligible but worth talking about, Phantom Thread, the Paul Thomas yeah. Anderson film.
0: Okay, so a question that came up with someone who I was talking about about this with is do they get married at the end i forgot they do they
1: do they do so it absolutely would apply yeah but it does happen at the end of the i time. know but it's yeah okay yeah. i would have accepted it okay well i appreciate that again those are our top five movies about marriage we would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net josh that is our show?
0: It is over at the website. You can also find reviews, interviews, top fives, and marathons like that great Satyajit Ray one, going back to 2005. Also at Filmspotting.net, vote in the current Filmspotting poll. We're asking what is the best Nine from Ninety Nine series performance. You can find more information about our whole Nine from Ninety Nine series at Filmspotting.net/slash Nine from Ninety Nine. If you want a film spotting t shirt or any other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. If you want to sign up for our weekly film spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. We are on Facebook and Twitter. That's where we put our top five list topics out in advance quite frequently, looking for your feedback. So
1: come meet us there. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on film. Out in wide release this weekend 21 Bridges about a disgraced New York Police Department detective who's given a chance at redemption. It stars Chadwick Boseman, Frozen 2 is out, and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, starring Tom Hanks as Mr. Fred Rogers, directed by Marielle Heller. In limited release, opening here in Chicago, Dark Waters, based on a true story. It's a corporate legal thriller with Mark Ruffalo and Anne Hathaway. Honeyboy, starring Shia LaBeouf, who plays his own dad in this memoir, also written by LaBeouf, Lucas Hedges, co-stars and The new one from the director of Cretia, and it comes at night. Trey Edward Schultz, the movie, is called Waves. We won't get a chance, unfortunately, to talk about any of those movies, at least not next week, as it's Thanksgiving, and we will have for you our golden brick preview special film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van
0: halgren without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go our production assistant is andy mitchell thanks also to candace griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board and special thanks to everyone at wbez chicago more information is available at wbez.org our music this week is from chanel mcginnis more information is at chanel mcginnis.bandcamp.com for Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar.
1: Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.